electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Stocks are rallying big time today as D.C. drama lifts for the next six weeks or so. The Dow has surged 1,000 points from yesterday's low. But what happens come December when we have to raise the debt limit again? And soaring energy prices are typically thought of as a threat to the economy, but things have changed a little bit. We'll get into the real nitty-gritty details and talk about who will bear the brunt of these price spikes. Plus, we talk a lot about how bad the supply chain has gotten. Today, we're going all around the world to show you exactly what's happening. We're tracking a hot holiday toy from the Chinese factory that made it to the California port that imports it to the Midwest truck that moves it to the East Coast store where you'll hope to buy one. But first, let's get you the numbers behind this big rally. Dom Chu has them as always. All right, positive for the week. That's what we have right now. And for the people keeping track at home, the Nasdaq has been a huge focus for the trade, of course, since the volatility really started and certainly since the fall from record highs. Right now, the Dow Industrials are up about 506 points. At the session highs, up roughly 558. So we're, yes, very close to those session highs. The S&P 500 up about 1.5%. Similar percentage moves there. 61 handles, 44.24 the last trade there. And the Nasdaq composite, yes, that epicenter of this volatility trade is 14.7043, about one and two-thirds percent of the upside. 240 points. By the way, we are now only about 4% below record high levels for the NASDAQ composite. So does this sentiment shift now, given the pricing action we've seen, that remains to be seen? Every one of the sectors behind me is in positive territory. Lead, you can see there by materials, up about 2%. Consumer discretionary up about one and three quarters percent as well. The laggards, if you want to call them that, utilities, more defensive side of things, and real estate as well. Even energy is only up about three quarters of 1% at this stage. But more than anything else, Kelly, what this is showing us over the last week, pay attention to the trade for mega cap technology and communication services. Over this one week to date period, it has done pretty well. It's up decently. But the stocks that have really outperformed on a week-to-date basis, the ones that have bounced the most since the lows, are those so-called value cyclical stocks. We're talking industrials, transportation, energy, materials-type names. They have done much better than mega-cap technology. So, Kelly, some traders and investors are looking to see whether or not that kind of trade which powered the markets to record highs earlier this year, remains that point that could power things again if things do do really kind of start to bounce off these levels, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom. Thank you very much, our Dom Chu. Now, that 1,000-point rally off yesterday's lows attributed to the tenuous debt deal Senate Republicans and Democrats have struck. The vote is expected later today. Let's get down to Elon Moy for the very latest. Elon? Well, Kelly, we do have a deal. Now we just need to vote. Republicans and Democrats have agreed to raise the debt ceiling by $480 billion, which the Treasury Department expects will last through around December the 3rd. Now, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell constructed this exit ramp after the two parties spent weeks at loggerheads. But McConnell said the negotiations continued in good faith through the night. The majority didn't have a plan to prevent default, so we stepped forward. The pathway our Democratic colleagues have accepted 
will spare the American people any near-term crisis. Now, Democrat, Democrats have already begun the process of bringing this bill to the floor. The vote could happen as soon as today if all 100 senators agree to speed up its passage. It also still needs to clear the House, which is in recess, before it goes to the president's desk for his signature. But this fight is not over yet, Kelly. It's just on pause until December. The new deadline for the debt limit is also the same day that funding for the government runs out. So we could be right back where we started in just a couple of weeks. Kelly. Oh, goody. Elon, thank you very much. We appreciate it, Elon Moy. Uh, the Dow is now on pace for its highest close in nearly a month, breaking a stretch of big declines. It's been a volatile start to the month, but my next guest says that's a good thing. She's finding opportunities in semiconductors and in consumer discretionary. Kim Forrest is chief investment officer at Boca Capital Partners. Kim, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. So I, I, I kind of want to zero in on the semiconductors in particular, where we spoke with Stacey Rasgun a week or so back, and he sees overshipment uh, problems maybe starting in autos and PCs. Micron, I know, is a name you like. It's a little bit uh, different story, but they're well down from their spring highs. Uh, the semiconductor SMH is still pretty close to its all-time highs. What are the macro trends that you see there, and which are the stocks that you think uh, people should be holding? Sure. So... Um, the future is tech. I mean, I hate to, to keep harping on this, but it is the thing that gives people productivity. And we have falling um, uh, populations around the world. And how are we going to power our way through this? Well, we're going to have technology take over for missing people. We'll just put it that way. But that's, that's way in the future. For the next three to five years, what we're looking at is 5G and its rollout. And more importantly, it's probably going to spur Internet of Things. Now, we've heard about this, about companies that want to maybe monitor remote locations, and 5G is going to give them the ability to do that. So those two things alone, we think, are going to just ramp up the demand for semiconductors, even past what we know today. All right. So that being said, for people who are worried that the cycle is turning, that we're going to see shortages turn into gluts, is that something you, th you recognize could be a near-term headwind? Are we still a couple of years off from that point? Um, from everything that I read and see, I think we're a couple years off from that point. Um, plus, we think demand is just going to continue to ramp. Some of the, the demand... Um, uh, or the supply issues that we've seen are from COVID and, you know, the whole supply chain issue. But I strongly believe some of this would have surprised um, the manufacturers anyhow. That, you know, if you look at what, how much computing power is in an average automobile, I don't think that um, the whole supply chain was taking that into consideration because it was only in luxury vehicles and now it's in more affordable cars. And we just see this um, continuing, not just from demand, but from uh, as cars go to EV away mm -hmm. from gas engines, you know, it's only going to drive more semiconductors. That's Absolutely. what drives those cars. All right. So we're showing Micron again, a pick of yours, not totally related to that, but just, you know, in sure. the space more broadly. Where else? We talked about some of the choppiness lately. What are some of the other stocks you think people should be looking at here? Well, uh, away from semiconductors or in the semiconductor area? Both and if you want. Okay. Well, I think Xilinx is really underrated. It is, uh, look, it, it is being bought by AMD, and we would certainly hold that um, and own AMD kind of through this back door of Xilinx. So that's my, my one big pick. The other is, and if you have a longer-term 
timeline. Look at consumer discretionary. Yes, it's ramped up a little bit, but it's well off its highs earlier this year. Um, I'm not naive. I do believe that they're going to have some uh, supply chain issues, but it may be a good time to look at some names that you want to own and start adding to your portfolio. VF Corp Urban Outfitters, why those two? Yep. Well, um, they both really know their customers well, and they've been doing it for a really long time. Fashion is so tough, and that's what we're really talking about here. And both of these companies have shown that they know how to pick the fashions people want to wear time and time again. And they do it in a really great way because a lot of their, well, VF Corp, of course, they're making the fashions. But um, a lot of the product that um, the Urban Outfitters uh, retailer sells is its in-house brands and they do that well and their margins are a little bit better than other discretionary retailers in the same space. All right, Kim, it's always good to check in with you. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Kim Forrest. Meanwhile, the September jobs report is out tomorrow morning, the first one since the enhanced federal unemployment benefits ended. A recent survey from hiring firm Challenger J and Christmas showed job announcements surging to the highest level in 17 years, with a surge in permanent job openings as well at what's typically a seasonal hiring time of year. And according to Recruiter.com, candidate sentiment, which measures how open people are to new roles, that increased for the first time in nearly a year. And recruiters now have a record number of positions to fill. Joining me now is Evan Sohn. He is the CEO of Recruiter.com. Evan, it's good to have you. I'm surprised that, that candidate sentiment is only increasing for the first time in a year because we have all these stories about, you know, high quits rate and YOLO and, and all this stuff. So could you unpack that for me? Yeah, well, first off, Kelly, thank you so much for having me again to talk about the uh, Recruiter.com, Recruiter Index. Uh, and yes, uh, candidate sentiment is up for the first time since November 20. Uh, we, we've been talking about it's a candidate's market, and uh, it still is a candidate's market. I think the great resignation is really upon us. Um, companies are really adjusting. We saw hybrid roles jump to now 42% of what uh, the recruiters are working on now. Uh, that is now past remote work or in-person work only. Uh, compensation in terms of a priority is only 31% of the total priorities for a candidate. Hmm. So we're really seeing candidates now, and I think companies, and we talked a few months ago about companies adjusting to these candidates, and I think they're finally catching up. Is that, it, it almost feels to me like that can't be true. Like when push comes to shove, Evan, will people always just take more money? It's, it's amazing to say compensation is only 31% uh, in terms of kind of the most important categories they're evaluating. Yeah, look, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to say anything about millennials, but new experiences are actually growing up, uh, are getting uh, increasing month over month. Mm -hmm. um, Work-life balance is increasing month over month. So there's certain other elements there. And, and clearly compensation, you know, has to be part of it because we're actually seeing salaries increase month over month as well. So I, I, I think all these factors, it's not an either or, it's really an and both. Awesome. Uh, and you mentioned before, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, and you mentioned before, we're really seeing a soaring demand for recruiters. Uh, just companies now, they need both more candidates, they need more tools to find more candidates, and then more recruiters to work those candidates. Um, and I think if we, we think about it at a macro level, it's much, much easier to interview for a job now. So you're going to see candidates look around for the job that's going to give them the best experience, the best work-life balance, uh, 
whether it's a hybrid role and compensation. And it, since it's easier to interview because we're using all this digital technology, uh, you need more you need more candidates in your pipeline in order to find those candidates. And I think that's really causing a serious surge in uh, in uh, the demand for recruiters. So as we think about you know tomorrow's numbers and what that might look like, one of the narratives has been that you know companies want to hire more than they can. And that's been putting the brakes uh, on hiring to some extent. So, you know, is that true? You know, Kim last segment was talking about how technology is going to replace people. And in some areas like trucking, you feel like that has to be true. If they literally cannot get enough people to move stuff around the country, at some point autonomous is going to have to step in or, or some other way of filling that gap. Um, what does it look like for you in terms of the ability to fill these roles ultimately? You know, it's great that there's a lot of candidates. It's great that there's a lot of openings. But at the end of the day, our position's getting filled. Yeah, so uh, great question. And, you know, we always say that the number the number that we report on or the number that can be reported on tomorrow are the net new jobs. Uh, we actually saw a surge uh, we've been tracking this for three months now. Of the roles, are they new roles or backfill roles? Hmm. Uh, last hmm. month it was 44%, up from 40% the prior month. Now it's 50%. So 50% of the roles that the recruiters are working on are actually backfill versus new. And what we're hearing anecdotally from our clients is they're not hiring fast enough to account for this churn. And that's why we really think this great resignation is really upon us. That's very, very interesting. And, and I think you would agree from your point of view, positive for hiring trends in the next couple months? Uh, a absolutely. A and again, it's it's positive for hiring trends, but we're seeing backfill uh, really taking a, a bigger role than new jobs. So really keeping up with those roles that the companies need to handle, not just to expand, but to really backfill the overall roles themselves. Absolutely. All right, Evan, thanks so much uh, for the granularity. We appreciate it. Evan Sohn with Recruiter.com as we wait on that big jobs report tomorrow. Coming up, a spike in crude, a surge in nat gas, and gasoline itself costs nearly 50% more than it did a year ago. But we'll look at why all these increases may not spell disaster for the economy and where they do hit really hard. Plus, we have global team coverage of the broken supply chain, starting with factories in China to the ships, trucks, and trains here We'll show you every beleaguered step of the way. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... <laughs> 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Keeping a close eye on WTI crude. They're near a seven-year high, around $78 a barrel. It's up 1% today. And the surge in global energy prices is having ripple effects throughout the U.S. economy. Still, not to the extent that many people may think. Steve Leisman is here to explain. Steve? 
Hey, Kelly, good afternoon. The surge in energy prices will hurt low-income Americans and sap money from other spending. And it's going to drive inflation higher at a time when, hey, inflation is already a problem. But with so much U.S. energy production, this price spike is going to hit the economy in a very different way from other ones. In what could be a pretty historic change, Nancy Lazar of Cornerstone Macro writes, soaring energy prices are no longer blanket bad news for the U.S. economy. In fact, GDP and oil prices now have a tiny positive correlation. U.S. oil production is off its high of 13 million barrels a day. That's part of the reason for higher prices. But it's still 11.5 million, and production is up in the last week. As prices rise, domestic producers should increase production and capital spending. That will boost growth. Americans now spend about 3% of their disposable income on energy. A lot of them think it's 50%, but it's not. It was 85 in the mid-70s, nearly 5% for much of this century. That said, higher energy prices are a regressive tax. They hurt poor people the most, much more than wealthy people. Michael England of Action Economics writes, this isn't good news for households. It'll hurt spending on other goods. It affects Christmas sales and department store sales at the margin. We now have an energy economy the size of Saudi Arabia inside the U.S. So amid the higher cost, higher prices bring large offsets, Kelly. Yeah, Steve, we appreciate it. Thank you very much, Steve Leisman, with some of the details there. My next guest says the huge spike in natural gas, which has soared 120% this year, double the move of crude, makes shares of nat gas distributors and utilities an attractive opportunity. Joining me now is Ryan Kelly. He's the chief investment officer at Hennessy's Funds and portfolio manager of the Hennessy Gas Utility Fund. Uh, Ryan, it's great to have you. So explain to me why utilities are financially benefiting from these prices. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I appreciate it. I think uh, one of the first things to remember, and Steve touched on this, is that the price of the commodity, the price of natural gas, uh, the price of producing electricity is a pass through to customers ultimately. And so these uh, utilities uh, through the regulatory process are, uh, you know, they're, they're there to deliver energy to the customer. Uh, they take a fee, uh, they're toll takers for moving that energy to the customer, but ultimately the cost itself is 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 passed on to the customer. So, you know, we think that uh, on, on a year-to-year basis, it's, it's really weather that mostly drives uh, the the spike in demand for these companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, we've had a 17% warmer than normal year so far from electricity generation for a lot of the electric utilities. Uh, you know, they've been producing a lot more electricity to keep our AC uh, running, uh, and uh, we think that. Uh, you know, this, this, this spike in natural gas prices uh, is going to hurt this winter, uh, but uh, this is a very resilient uh, industry. And in yeah. the past, when we've had these types of movements, we've also seen production come back online as well. Exactly. And that's what I want to talk about. So you have holdings both on the production side with names like Chenier, obviously on the utility side, which, as you said, just kind of passing things along as well. Um, on the sort of, with a name like Schneer and with all of the demand that we're going to see for liquefied natural gas and all the rest of it, tell me how long you think prices are going to stay up here. I mean, what happens for people who might be looking at a Chenier with prices around $6? Are we going to fast forward a few months and see prices back in the $4 range? Sure. Well, uh, you know, one thing to, to remember, Chenier is uh, an LNG exporter. They ship LNG around the world. Uh, right now in the U.S., uh, uh, natural gas prices are around five or six dollars per million BTU. Well, over in, in Asia and also in Europe, they've hit close to uh, 40 almost. Right. So that is the spread that's really driving all of this. Is that uh, the rest of the world wants our natural gas? Uh, we are, uh, uh, besides Hurricane Ida, taking things down for a little bit. We are absolutely at peak capacity right now. 
moving natural gas out of uh, the country. This is all very good for Chenier. You know, it's it's just uh, creating a whole lot of cash for the company right now. They've been waiting for a long time for this, and I think that it's probably going to go on for quite some time for them. Because you think natural gas is complementary to renewables in the kind of lower carbon future that, again, next month, COP26 is going to highlight. China is obviously trying to reduce its usage of coal and the rest of it. But even there, where the prices are much above U.S. levels, can they stay this high? I mean, look what happened yesterday when Russia said it would start to you know, put more supply back online. Yeah, they, they'll probably come back down. And, and one of the things that we, we recognize here that this is a, this is a short-term disruption in many ways uh, for, for various reasons. Um, but, uh, you know, the rest of the world has, not the rest of the world, but many parts of Europe uh, has uh, absolutely uh, um, gone to natural gas as the transition fuel from a pure a fossil fuel type energy economy to someday a much more 70 percent, 80 percent or higher renewable uh, type energy complex. And so right now, I think we're in a little bit of a bind where a lot of countries have moved too fast, too mm -hmm. far, uh, and everyone wants natural gas. Uh, China is worried about blackouts this, this, this uh, winter. Uh, they want to keep production up. They need energy. They're going to keep buying uh, no matter what the price, I think, for quite some time until they can really fill up some of their energy reserves. So last question for investors who have been burned by the past decade of low natural gas prices and that being true maybe with uh, oil as well. Tell them why you think this time will be different or is it going to be different for the U.S.? Is it only that um, sort of gap between what the rest of the world has to pay uh, that is creating the investment opportunities. And again, you mentioned Chenier, you also like Kinder Morgan. Um, on more the utility side, you like Atmos and Duke. Yeah. And, you know, that's really my focus more is that, you know, the, the, the prices of natural gas will come and go. I think that we're in a, uh, this is a, I think that we'll come back down here from where we are. Um, I don't think this is going to stay up at $6 for uh, the next two or three years because production will come back online. Uh, but, you know, it's the utilities, it's the distribution companies, it's uh, those companies that really work on volumes. Uh, it's the electric utilities that, you know, we're in a situation where um, uh, I think that we're in the beginning innings of uh, having to expand our grid immensely mm -hmm. over the next 30 years. So all those together mean that it's growth for the for the industry, growth for utilities. Yeah. And, uh, you know, our long term growth rates are probably pretty low in what we think these companies can do. Very interesting. After, I think, a, a, maybe a decade plus of not increasing electricity demand, maybe a 25 percent total need uh, if we all start driving EVs. Ryan, thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. Breaking down some of the ways investors should play this. Ryan Kelly Thank is you. with Hennessy Funds. Coming up, Warren Buffett's right-hand man is doubling down on a big bet in China, and it has the stock tracking for its best day in four years. We'll tell you the name and how much he's buying. Plus, we'll show you every piece of the broken global supply chain. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow's up 504 points, just about 50 points off session highs. About a 1.5% gain across the board today. And again, a 1,000-point rebound from the lows yesterday, mostly driven by this resolution for now, the debt ceiling. Let's check on the sectors. Here are some of the movers. Oh, I'm sorry, let's stay with the sectors for a moment so you can see that materials are in the lead, consumer discretionary up there as well. And just pretty much everything behind me is up more than 1%. Now, let's talk about some of the movers. Investors, as you can see, are betting on nearly everything today. A diverse group of the top of the S&P today. We've got Freeport, Penn National, Ford, and PVH. Freeport Mac ran up better than 7%. Penn National, a similar amount. Over in the Dow, it's a similar picture with United Health, the Industrial Dow, Walgreens, and Cisco. UNH is up more than 3% today. And the Chinese tech stocks are leading the Nasdaq. Pinduoduo, JD, and Baidu among the top winners. And we'll have more on the drivers behind this move in just a moment. But look at the K-Web, the Crane Shares uh, China Internet ETF is bouncing 7% today. What's not working? Pinnacle West sliding to a new 52-week low after a double downgrade to sell at Guggenheim. Pinnacle West down almost 7% as the analyst there furiously says Arizona regulators are dropping the ball and that uh, people may not want to invest in the grid that powers Phoenix over there. A really interesting story. Smile Direct down 4%. Kellogg and Live Nation lagging as well. Now to Christina Partsenevelis for our CNBC News update. Hi, Christina. Hello, Kelly. So here is what is happening at this hour. At least 17 people have been injured in today's earthquake centered near Tokyo. At least one is seriously hurt. Video from the top of a high-rise building shows a shaky view of Tokyo's skyline. Train and subway service was halted. There are reports one commuter train partially derailed when it made an emergency stop. But officials say there is no major damage or risk of a tsunami. On the news, the latest on the developing picture of the earthquake's impact at 7 p.m. Eastern. In Alabama, the death toll from flash flooding has risen to four. All occurred when water swept away vehicles. As much as 13 inches of rain fell in parts of the state. IBM says all U.S. employees must get vaccinated by December 8th or be suspended without pay. The company says it will consider medical and religious exemptions. And San Francisco says it will ease indoor mask rules on October 15th. Places with fewer than 100 people will no longer require masks, but only if everyone is vaccinated and COVID uh, COVID infection rates for the city do not rise. Kelly, there are the updates for you. I'll send it back to you in the studio. Christina, thank you very much. Still ahead, retailers have been warning consumers to start their holiday shopping early this year as the global supply chain is still backed up. Up next, we're going around the world to track one hot holiday toy's long journey from fabrication in China to the store shelf in New England to show you why. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. Supply chain issues have been plaguing retailers large and small since the pandemic began. Today, we're tracing one toy's journey from manufacturer to consumer. It's Basic Fund's iconic Care Bear. We've got four reporters thousands of miles apart covering her trip. Eunice Yoon is in Shanghai visiting Basic Fund's Chinese supplier. Jane Wells is at the port of Los Angeles. I think she's literally in a boat right now uh, where a record number of cargo ships are backed up. Frank Holland is in Illinois at a transfer station crucial for the rail and trucking industries. And we'll finish in the Massachusetts toy store with Courtney Reagan, who will tell us just how much of the journey's cost will be passed along to shoppers. Eunice, kick us off. Thanks, Kelly. Well, before our Care Bear heads to the U.S., it stops here at the Shanghai port. The Care Bears are manufactured at a factory in the central Chinese city of Ankong. A stronger yuan, rising wages, and pricier stuffing mean that the cost to make the Care Bear is up 25% since January. 
The Care Bears sit in boxes for another one to two months at the factory compared to zero waiting time before the pandemic. And then once the factory gets the green light that there's space for their Care Bears on a container vessel, those bears are transported here to the Shanghai port. However, even here, they face several challenges. Because of Beijing's very strict zero-tolerance approach towards COVID, the port protocols are really, really strict. In fact, even one case of COVID can trigger a 14-day shutdown at a dock. So ships here are waiting on average three to four days. Truckers are lining up at some of the big warehouses for up to 40 hours. Makes life very difficult for these workers. Raises costs for all the manufacturers. In fact, once the Care Bear leaves a factory, it could take another 20 days or so before it reaches a U.S. port like L.A. Kelly? So, Eunice, you would say that the problem is both with how quickly it can be made, that's taking a lot longer, and then even how quickly, once it is made, it can leave and get exported from China? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the, the most of the waiting time, though, is waiting for one of those ships to be able to loosen up space so that they could get those Care Bears onto those vessels heading to the United States. All right, Eunice, thank you so much. All right, so again, Eunice is in Shanghai with the Bears early, uh, you know, with, with, its, with its birth, uh, its birth story there. When it leaves China, it has to get through the port of Los Angeles, and good luck with that. And that's where we find our Jane Wells today. Jane? <laughs> Hey, Kelly, uh, that ship right behind me only has Walmart containers on it. That shows you how some of these big companies are chartering their, their own ships. You know, most importers have originally for a while been baking in an extra four weeks. I talked to a furniture importer last night and he said, weeks? Think months. We were, he was originally paying $2,400 for a container. That's now up to $7,000. And look, the people here at the port say these ships have to be out here for 10 days before they can get an appointment to be unloaded. That's because if you look at the port, they, they can't unload any of these containers until they have trucks come in to remove the hundreds of the thousands of containers there. But there aren't enough truckers, there aren't enough chassis, and the truckers have no place to take the stuff because the warehouses are full. John Monroe has been in for over 30 years. I've had one company call me about finding a warehouse in China and not shipping, you know, uh, uh, almost 100 containers out and instead storing them in China and waiting until, you know, through this season. So everybody's looking for some kind of a solution. And I want to show you this full screen for marine traffic. Those green squares are container ships that are here right now. And I should also add, Kelly, the Coast Guard is to continuing to investigate whether maybe an anchor was involved in the big oil spill we had. I was you. wondering, because we keep seeing all of these ships, and you wonder, okay, if an anchor was dragged along, is that because there's more ships out there than normal? But Jane, my real question is, so it, it was interesting, Eunice said the real problem in China is getting it exported on a ship. And now you're telling me the real problem with getting it imported on a ship is the shortage of truckers, right? Yeah, I, I, you broke up a little bit. Yeah, the problem here is, as the Port of L.A. director says, it's like 10 lanes of freeway going into five. It's, it's upstream, if you will. It's, it's the warehouses. They're full. And in fact, well, you'll hear Frank talk about it. A lot of stuff isn't even going inland because they won't take it anymore. Right. It's like each stage is being held up by problems at the next stage. Uh, still extraordinary, Jane, to have you out there on a boat, uh, really bringing that to us firsthand. We really, really appreciate it. Our Jane Wells.
All right, so half of the Care Bears that do get to come into L.A., destined for the East Coast, are then shipped by rail to the Midwest, where a transfer station puts them on a truck for the final leg of their trip. That's where our Frank Holland is today at a CSX transfer station in Illinois with a look at the backlogs there. Frank? Hey there, Kelly. Well, the top lanes for shipping containers all around the country, they've seen their rates more than double since 2019. Behind me, you can see all the action. You can probably hear it, too. Busy day here at the CSX Container Shipping Yard in suburban Chicago. All of the rails use the Chicago area as a key transfer point for containers that are heading east of the Mississippi. Take a look. This is drone footage that really illustrates how these transfer points have turned into de facto storage facilities because of a shortage of workers, a shortage of equipment that truckers use to haul containers, and even a shortage of truck drivers. CSX is investing in additional storage to try to break up the logjam. And a terminal like this is neither designed for or has the physical capacity, really, to serve as a long-term storage facility during times of high volume. The result? The results spin container shipped by rails has declined very sharply. That's largely because retailers and other shippers, they turn to trucks as they race to get their goods into stores during the holiday season. And now trucking rates, they're 91% higher than they were back in 2019, often making the trip more expensive and even take longer than it used to do to get things like Care Bears on its store shelves. Kelly? Wow. So I, I guess, Frank, the thing to understand here is that there's a trucking problem, and it, right. it, it seems to me that demand for these goods just snapped back before the supply chain was able to deal with it. Or is it that the volume itself is higher than they've ever had to deal with before? Well, it's a multifaceted problem, but here in these kind of uh, container yards, one of the biggest issues, and Jane touched on it, is the lack of chassis that truckers use to uh, ship these containers away. There's a shortage of those due to a number of factors, including the trade war and also U.S. makers of those uh, chassis trying to ramp back up. But either way you cut it, there's a shortage now. People are also holding on to them longer. Before, the use time for a chassis that was leased or rented from a company that leases them was about three days. Now it's more than a week. So in addition to there not being enough, the ones that are out there are getting held longer and longer because of delays at ports and delays at transfer points like this. Shortage of chassis. Oh, my gosh. Everything shortage, Frank. Thank you so much. We greatly appreciate it. Frank Holland in Illinois at that transfer station today. All right. So now that Care Bear has finally arrived at her destination, a toy store in Massachusetts, Courtney Reagan is standing by to tell us just how much customers can expect to pay for her trip if they can even buy one quart. Yeah, Kelly. So when you put all of this together, basically it's taking twice as long to get a product like this Care Bear from the factory in China to this Learning Express store in Bedford, Massachusetts. And it's costing the toy maker, Basic Fun, about 620% more than it did pre-pandemic to make that journey, which means that up to a quarter of the Care Bear's cost is just transportation alone. We're adding a freight surcharge at the end of the invoice. And the, the retailer will have to determine whether they incorporate that into the selling price of the goods and raise the price a little bit, or they absorb that. I mean, this is just a very difficult problem, of course, as you can understand. And this toy store is selling the Care Bears for $16.99. They say they have enough inventory for now. We've been very fortunate that our vendor partners have not increased their prices uh, substantially, so we've been able to maintain uh, our existing prices 
pretty well throughout the store, uh, but the supply chain issues are very real. Uh, we are seeing that it's taking weeks to months to get product into the store, and so we encourage you to buy now if you see something that, a gift that you want to give to um, someone this Christmas. So while the Care Bear is expected to be one of those hot items for Christmas, and it is here, there are items that are also supposed to be hot items, featured, in fact, in this toy store's Christmas catalog, and they haven't arrived yet. Things like some of those LOL dolls that have been popular for some time. Kelly? Well, and I have one of the Care Bears here, a nice, uh, nice bright fuchsia color. I, when you said $16.99, my jaw almost dropped court because after everything that I've watched, I'm like, how doesn't this cost $100? What, did it cost 50 cents to make? I don't understand. When the shipping goes from 2000 to 7000 a vessel, and everyone in my neighborhood is talking about how they can't get furniture they ordered until, you know, three, six months from now, and they know even though those dates are going to get pushed back. It's a real problem out there. Yeah, so this is this Care Bear retails for $16.99 here. The price is going to vary and be a little bit less expensive at a bigger retailer like a Target or like an Amazon, a Walmart. You know, of course, they have economies of scale. They have other lever, levers they can pull. And like Jay Foreman, the CEO of Basic Fund, said to us, look, we add a freight surcharge. The retailer then has to decide what they're going to do with the price. And so, so far, Learning Express has been able to figure it out, setting the price at $16.99, and they feel comfortable holding holding that price for now. But if things get worse, if the material costs go up more, if that transportation cost goes up even more, there's no guarantee that these price tags stay. It's just a sticker, right? They could peel it off and they could charge a higher price. It's also interesting, Kelly, that the size of a toy or of an item in general is also going to play a big factor in it because you can squeeze an awful lot of these Care Bears into a container. Right. But if it's a big item like patio furniture, yeah, you're kind of limited, right, with space to get that in a container. No, it's fascinating. You guys did such a great job, everybody. We appreciate it. Eunice you and Jane Wells, Frank Holland, and Courtney Reagan illustrating the journey for just this one holiday toy. And I will say, the upside of having no furniture is there's plenty of room uh, around the house for the kids to play. Still ahead, shares of this Chinese tech giant are popping today after Charlie Munger increased his stake, but they're still down more than 45% over the past year. We will reveal the name and whether you should follow his trade coming up after this. Welcome back, everybody. Charlie Munger's Daily Journal nearly doubling down on a China bet, scooping up some shares on the dip. Christina Partsonevelis is here with the name at long last, Christina, and the details. Oh, Baba, ain't the black sheep today with shares rising well above 9%. This is Warren Buffett's business partner in crime, Charlie Munger. As Kelly mentioned, he's also the chairman of the Daily Journal that and operates its portfolio business. That's why we care. The latest SEC filing shows the firm increased its stake in Alibaba by 83% last quarter. Shares, though, of Baba, keep in mind, have tumbled to about 32% year-to-date due to regulatory threats in China. And so while others rushed for the exit, Munger doubled down in Baba with at least $40 million earlier this year, which isn't really the norm as he normally invests in American companies. So does that mean the Chinese market is on sale? Many institutional investors just can't agree. We heard about uh, from a lot of them last week, JP Morgan Asset and Wealth Management CEO. Uh, she was saying you need to Think about rebalancing to areas that have gone on sale. China has gone on sale. And then you 
juxtapose that versus social capital founder and CEO Chamath Palihapitiya on China. It's a place that I will read about and not invest in. And then you've got BlackRock also urging investors to increase exposure uh, to China by three times, while George Soros is saying the exact opposite in the Wall Street Journal. So whether it's increased risk appetite or President Biden's announcement he's going to meet with Chinese president later this year. Chinese stocks are on a tear over the past few sessions. I know, Kelly, at the, earlier in the show, you went through some names, so I pulled up some other ones. So Billy Billy, you could see, is up over 10% Baidu, also up over 5%. Didi up over uh, 4% right now. But even Goldman Sachs is betting big on Chinese EV, EV firm Neo, saying it could gain 66%. So many on Wall Street right now argue that despite regulatory risks and slow growth, China is just too big to ignore, and its stocks are too undervalued to pass up. Yeah, it, listen, we talk to people on both sides of this debate almost every single day. The interesting thing about Munger and Alibaba is that he has time and again expressed his admiration for sort of the autocratic way China runs its economy, um, often while also expressing his chagrin at how we run ours. So, you know, I, I think that people understand with their sort of BYD uh, investments and others that he may have a the stomach kind of long term for a the 97. Same, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, long term. Listen, you know, he thinks with a 30 year time horizon. <laughs> but, but for those of we've talked about these these stocks popping just over the last few sessions. But Alibaba is just well, what, 50 percent off of its 52 uh, week high. K-Web, it's still K-Web. Yep. I know Alibaba's having the best day since, what is it, June 2017. But this authoritarian regime, they're not going to give away, you know, mar- uh, they want market principles to stay there, but control is getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Absolutely. And we don't know necessarily what that's going to mean for a lot of these companies I, going forward. I completely agree. So you have the risk appetite, right? Just exactly. dive in, which is a lot, of, a lot of people are doing that. Yeah, absolutely. He's probably the most high-profile person who could really kind of plant that stake in the ground. Christina, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Christina Parts and Evelis. Up next, Morgan Stanley is bullish on five below despite supply chain issues. Their shares higher by about 5% on the note. We'll talk to the analyst behind this next. Jim Cramer also likes Five Below, calling it a great growth name that's poised to bounce back in his CNBC Investing Club newsletter today. If you want more of Jim's exclusive insights, you can sign up by heading to cnbc.com slash investing club or by pointing your phone at the QR code on the screen. Welcome back. Inflation and supply chain concerns have been weighing on shares of Five Below. You can see them down nearly 20 percent over the past month after reporting a revenue miss. But today, up 6 percent. Why? Morgan Stanley sees this dip as a buying opportunity, upgraded the stock to overweight, saying the share price is cheap for such a good growth opportunity and inflation fears are overblown. Now Five is having its best day in four months. For more, let's welcome in the analyst behind this call, Simeon Gutman of Morgan Stanley. Simeon, um, why, how much upside do you see? Uh, we see like 25-30% upside. Our price target is $230. Um, strangely enough, that's the same price target we had about a month and a half ago when we, we stepped away and we downgraded to equal weight. So, you know, like you said, growth at a discount. It's been a good compounded growth story over time. And I think all these fears around supply chain and inventory have, have uh, infected the stock price. Well, it's interesting to look at Dollar Tree as a case in point here. Both Dollar Tree and Five Below have more or less fixed selling prices until Dollar Tree basically. Now, wait, you tell me the story. Did they get away? Did Dollar Tree do away with the $1 cap or not? Beginning to. So they have this Dollar Tree Plus format that gets away from it, but they're also now breaking the $1 price point 
in their all their traditional stores. It hasn't hit the shelves yet. Mm. We'll see how long it takes. But yes, I think this environment called for you know the need to break that buck. If I recall, investors love the fact that they're trying to break the buck. Now I feel like we're talking about money funds, but we don't know if consumers will agree. What is Five Below's strategy here? Yeah, so look, Five, right, they sell fun at pretty low price points. I think if, if you remember when we used to go back to the mall, to these novelty gift shops, you know, you, you, they have all these good gadgets, but they were, you know, some low price points, some high price points. I actually never walked away buying something. Five Below, everything below five bucks, they've broken their $5 threshold for call it higher quality or more aspirational items, but the magic is because every time you buy something at that price point, whether it's a t-shirt, it's candy, it's a toy, it's some type of thing related to pop culture, you feel like you would have paid 10 or $15. And it's the same value proposition when you're buying something now between 5 and $10. So they broke through that barrier. They've tested it. They know it works. Um, and I think as long as you're delivering that value to the customer every time, they'll keep coming back to you. Yeah, I... I tested this out in the real world. I think we got an inflatable kids pool for whatever it was, $5 at the store. And I was in the uh, the grocery store, the Kings, which then went bankrupt. Anyway, uh, about two weeks later, they were selling it for $20. So somehow they found a way to do this to me. But can they keep to this low price, this value strategy as the cost of everything has been going up? I mean, can they literally even keep product on the shelves? Yeah. So on the, on the cost side, the answer is we think they can. Um, it's about constant value engineering. I would say, thankfully, they figured out a way to break through the $5 barrier. Um, at some point, you know, we'll see. Over, over time, inflation, they, they have to maybe break through other barriers. But now it's finding a way to deliver value in the 5 to $10 range. As far as having inventory, um, this was our surprise from, you know, we had a meeting with the company yesterday. And I think a lot of uh, investors are putting smaller size retailers into this bucket of, won't be able to manage costs, won't be able to get inventory. Five delivered a surprisingly good, and I would call it benign inventory picture. They've been planning for this environment for a while. They've been buying forward. They're very connected to their merchants, and they have very good visibility. Look, we were skeptical, too, a month and a half ago. I think they shored those fears up, and I think that was effectively our call, is that we think the inventory is going to be on the shelf, and they have good visibility for the next call it. Uh, two to three quarters. Well, I know where I'm going if I need something for Christmas in a pinch. Simeon, thanks very much. Uh, we really appreciate you being on today. Yep, thanks for having me. Simeon Gutman explaining his call on Five Below. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 